I wonder how often we're declaring those words. But if we actually take a deep look into our life, is our life truly built upon God's kingdom? Is it truly built upon who He is? Or have we created for ourselves an image of what we think our God is that's convenient for us? That doesn't push us, that doesn't ask too much from us. And have we built our life upon that God? See, so often we picture Jesus as this man who preached to the masses and fed the 5,000. We picture Jesus who welcomed the children up into His arms. We love the Jesus who welcomed the woman who came and broke the alabaster jar of perfume over His feet. We love the Jesus who stood as they brought this woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And he said, let he with the first stone throw. But we forget that even with the masses who Jesus preached to, even with the hundreds and thousands of miracles that He performed, we forget that as He did all of these things, that He disrupted and flipped the entire culture upside down. That the religious leaders of the day were angry at Him. That when He came in, when He came onto the scene, They didn't know what to do with Him. They didn't know how to apply, how to take what He was saying because it was so different. Because as long as God was in this box that they had built... As long as the kingdom was in this vending machine that they could control and they knew what currency it took and they printed the currency and they told everybody else what the currency was and they dictated that we're the ones with the spiritual currency and you're the spiritual destitute. We can come to God and you cannot. We can receive from God and you cannot. As long as they were in control, as long 
long as they knew that God was inside of this box, they were happy and they felt fulfilled because they were in power and then suddenly Jesus radically flipped the paradigm because the God who they had boxed up was safe and comfortable. Because the God that they had boxed up, they knew what it was that they had to do, even if the burden was too much. They knew it was, I've got to do this. I've got to write the words and write them upon my, and tape them to my forehead. I have to uh, memorize God's word. I've got to go and make sacrifice. I've got to go and do this. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. And I go through the ritual. And as long as I've got my checklist every day and I go through, then I can pat myself on the back and tell myself, oh, what a good job. It doesn't matter whether or not I really truly love God. It doesn't matter whether or not I'm seeking Him. It doesn't matter whether or not I've really given Him my life. It doesn't matter about any of this other stuff. As long as on the outside I look, I look good, as long as on the outside I've got it all together, as long as I dress up and bathe myself before going to the synagogue, as long as I wear my tassels, as long as I don't eat with Gentiles, as long as I don't eat these forbidden foods, as long as I do this, as long as I do these things then I know that I've got God exactly where He wants, where I want Him to be, and I am in control. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and He smashes the box. And He says, God does not simply want your service. He wants everything. He demands everything, every area of our life. You see, it's His kingdom. And yet so often, as believers, we treat it like it's our kingdom, that it's my kingdom. And we go through life living and doing things the way we want to do them, the way we see fit, without surrendering everything, without handing everything over to God, without totally losing ourselves in Him because we want to feel safe, because we want to feel comfortable. We hang on to those areas in our life that we don't want to release. We talked about this last week. We hang on to them rather than turning them over to Him. Because that's where we feel safe. That's where I feel comfortable. But the truth is, is that God is not Satisfied with safe and comfortable. The word tells us that our God 
is mighty. And also, it describes him as terrible. I heard a preacher this week preaching on this very thing. He's gracious and loving to us, but he is terrible to our enemy. Fearsome. He is powerful. Our God is dangerous. And that danger is a powerful thing because He comes alongside of us as His children and He protects us and those who come against us we know will not prosper because He is all-powerful, because nothing can stand in His way. He is like a father who is protecting his child when someone is trying to attack his child. He launches out into attack. But we forget that He is also demanding of every area of our life. And you say, well, Pastor, no, that's, that's not true. I know that. Pastor, I know that. But the problem is, is that we come and we want to keep church safe. We want church to be a place and not a calling we want church to be something that we go and do rather than something that we are. We want God to be someone who we go and visit rather than someone who is intimately involved in every area of our life, who is in control of every decision that we make. You see, we go through this life and we live this life and we have the American dream and I love the American dream. I love this country. I love the fact that we have a democratic republic that we can vote and that we can come together. I love all of these things, but church, can I tell you that oh, we have Americanized the gospel We have perverted the gospel with the American dream. And said that what God wants for me is to be wealthy. What God wants for me is to be happy. What God wants for me is to have all of these things over here. You see, that's the American dream. And the problem with any good lie is there's always an ounce of truth in it. God wants us to be full of joy. He wants us to be full of joy even in moments of despair in our life. Even in moments of suffering. Even in moments of hardship. He wants us to walk in joy. You see, the kingdom is backwards from the rest of the world. It's completely upside down. So if we want kingdom results, we have to flip our world upside down. We have to flip our values upside down. We have to flip our Morals upside down. 
You see, Jesus came onto the scene and he disrupted things by lifting a little child up into his arms and saying, unless you become like this little child, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Another story is told, Jesus is walking along and the man comes up to him and he says, Jesus, I want to follow you, but first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus looks at him and says, let the dead bury their dead. If you're going to follow me, follow me. To another, he said, a man who touches the plow sets his sets his." Uh, heart to the plow and then turns back to the things behind him. He's not worthy. These are hard teachings. That God does not desire a halfway mentality. He is not satisfied with part of our life. He is not satisfied with a piece of us. He is not satisfied with just an area of our life. He is not satisfied with just an offering. He demands everything from us. And if we are not willing to give everything, then we cannot expect to operate and walk in the favor and the anointing of God. To the wise, to the rich young ruler who came to Jesus, he said, I've done all of these things that you've asked and said. What do I have left? And he said, Jesus looked at him and said, Sell everything that you have, sell it all, and come and follow me. And it says that the man walked away sad. It doesn't say that the man stepped in behind the disciples and followed him, it doesn't say that he began to perform many signs and wonders. It doesn't say that he began to draw close to the teachings of God. So why on earth do we think that we can flirt with the world? Why on earth do we think that we can live in the world? Why on earth do we think that we can live by the world's standards and the world's governances and still walk in the favor of God? Listen, I'm not trying to be cruel. I'm not trying to be mean. I am trying to wake us up That it is God's kingdom. And it's not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's not just live righteously. Because the truth of the matter is that it's impossible for you to live righteously. Jesus taught, if He taught us anything, is that without Him, it's impossible. He flipped the paradigm. Because the world tells us that if you work hard enough, if you study long enough, if you memorize this word enough, if you come to church enough, if you say the right things and dress the right part If we build the right programs and the right church ministries with the right songs. 
If we do all of these things, then God will move. And we can stay safe. And God's looking and saying, no. I want so much more than just your actions. Don't get me wrong. Faith without action is dead. We cannot speak or proclaim that we have faith and then have inaction in our life. But at the same time, we can't go through the motions and expect that God is operating on our behalf because I've done everything that I'm supposed to do. Because the truth of the matter is, church, that we... We're never deserving. We were never deserving. It's just grace. It's just mercy. And when we push God off and we give Him less than everything in our life, we give Him less then all that we are, we step upon the blood of Christ. We squander God's grace. We treat it as if it is something common. And we say, God, I like what you did. But, and I know that you gave everything. But I don't want to surrender this area of my life. I like that I'm in control here. I like that I am in control. And so we live our life. And many people, many believers become broken and downhearted and discouraged church, listen to me. They become crushed by the world. My heart is broken because of the leaders who are coming out and denouncing Jesus. Denouncing their faith in God. Denouncing relationship. Proclaiming and being happy about it. And declaring that they were wrong and asking the world to forgive them. Saying that they were wrong to preach purity. They were wrong to preach the gospel. They were wrong to teach the tenets of faith. And they are happy that they have done it. And we sit and we go, how can someone operate in the spiritual giftings of God? How can we look at their life and know that the anointing of God was moving through them and then in this moment they 
completely denounce Christ and begin to become not only just lost in their faith, but they begin to publicly denounce and try to lead others astray. How do they get to that place, church? They get to that place because they were living this life by the rules of this world and you cannot be successful in the kingdom operating under the principles and the guidelines of this world. We will never survive because the enemy is prowling the world like a lion roaming back and forth, searching for prey, searching for some sign of weakness. I loved watching National Geographic and Animal Planet growing up. I loved watching the animals. But one thing I learned is that if you watch a pack of lions or any predator, they don't attack the strong. And if they do attack the strong, it's merely to cause a diversion to separate the weak so that they can devour them. Paul wrote in Corinthians 13. That if I could speak all the languages of earth and of, and of the angels but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging simple symbol. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. It's not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no records of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. We love that passage of Scripture on weddings, but Paul was not speaking to a couple getting married. He was speaking to disciples of Jesus. Defining what the love of God is. Now does any of that sound like the world's definition of love? The world's definition of love is if you really love someone, you'll let them do whatever makes them happy. If you really love someone, then you won't Ask them to take on any responsibility for their actions. If you really love someone, then 
all you'll want to do is just have a nice, cordial, Facebook-level friendship where you don't really get to know anything about them, but you just like everything that they do, and you just pat them on the back and say, oh, what a good job. You see, the world doesn't know what true love is. We do. Because Jesus is love. Because God is love. And if we want to be successful in God's kingdom, we have to flip the paradigm and break the box that we have put God into. That means we have to surrender every area of our life. That means we have to quit justifying ourselves and justifying our actions. Listen, the devil has been using the Word of God to convince people to do evil things since the beginning of time. I can read the Bible and make it say anything I want it to say. I can study the Word of God and go out. If all I do is read the words and I can commit heinous sins and heinous acts, and use the word of God to justify it. It's not enough to simply read God's word and say, what does that mean to me? It has been popular in our culture today to study God's word and we think we're going deeper in God's word and we are not we have hollowed out and shallowed the truth of God's word because we forgot to ask the first question. Yes, we want to apply God's word. How does this apply to me? What does it mean to me? What is God asking of me? What does he want to do? But the first, we want to apply, but that essential element is what is God saying? What is God saying? What is God communicating? What is He asking? What is it that He wants? And then I ask, how does that apply to my life? How does that apply? So when He looks at the disciples and He's... he's Bending down and he's washing their feet and he's saying, do you understand what I have done 
for you? Do you understand what I did? And he said, if you want to become the greatest in the kingdom, you have to be the least. What is it that God was communicating to them? What is it that he was trying to say? What is it that was so vital and so important to you and I as believers that we need to know, that we have to know? And then what does that mean for me and my life? Because if I come to the conclusion that what Jesus was saying, that to be successful in the kingdom of God does not mean that you have to have your name in the limelights. To be successful in the kingdom of God does not mean that you have to be exalted and highly favored. It does not mean that you have to have the largest, fastest growing mega church in America. It does not mean that everybody has to look at you. It does not mean that you have to be able to speak fluently and speak eloquently. It does not mean that you have to be able to speak charismatically. It does not mean that you have to look pretty, that you have to look cleaned up. It doesn't mean that you have to look like your life is all together. It means that if I want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, then I have to lose myself in Him and lose all self-respect and lose all dignity and lose every part of myself that says, God, I am not willing to surrender that part that I must decrease and He must increase in my life so that when people see me, they stop seeing Mark and they start seeing Jesus. And then I ask the question, what does that mean for me? It may mean that I have to lay some things down, that I have to stop doing some things, that I have to surrender some things. It may mean that when I come home and I'm tired and I'm exhausted and I'm worn out and all I want to do is hop on my phone and play the latest puzzle game because I really love puzzles and I want to spend hours doing that, it may mean that I need to put that phone down and get alone with Jesus and spend some time in His presence. It may mean that I need to wake up and desire to read and study God's Word every day to not just come to church to be fed, but to long to know what this Word has to say and what it says and how it applies in my life, what God is communicating and how it applies. Church, it means... Instead of getting lost in everything that we see that needs to be fixed in our lives, that instead we redirect and we lose ourselves in everything that God has done in our lives. It's human nature to nitpick. And to look at everything else around. It's human nature to constantly be evaluating ourselves based on how somebody else is in their walk. So I make myself feel better when I see somebody else who I deem 
to be beneath me on the spiritual journey with God. And so I lift myself up and I make myself feel better rather than comparing myself to the only one who matters is Jesus. And it doesn't matter, church, how good you are. When you compare yourself with Jesus, we can only come to one conclusion. And that is what Paul echoed in Romans when he said, Woe is me, what a horrible wretch I am. But for the grace of God, without His presence, without His kingdom. And then suddenly what begins to shift and happen in our life, as we begin to understand that we are nothing without him, then we begin to say, I have to have Jesus. I can't just go Sunday to Sunday. I've got to wake up every day and get into His presence. I have to draw close to Him every moment. I need Him to move in my life. And when I worship Him and when I glorify Him, I go after Him like I need my next breath. Like I need my next meal. Because I know and recognize one thing. That without Him, I am nothing. Without Him, I am absolute dust. But with Him, that same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus up from the dead now dwells inside of me. And if I could just draw close to Him and let His Spirit fill me up, then I begin to step out. And no longer I, but God's grace in me. And wherever I walk becomes holy ground, not because of me, but because the Spirit of the living God is dwelling within me. And wherever I go becomes church. Wherever I am, the Spirit of God can move. Why? Because I have flipped the paradigm and I have surrendered myself to God and His kingdom. I have recognized that He is in control of everything, of every area, of every every facet of every part that he is God he is king hallelujah you have only to read through first and second kings to see laid out for you what happens when we do things the world's way and when we do things God's way. One king had come on the scene and he does things God's way. And guess what? God blessed and poured out favor and people began to draw close to God. And another king would come on the scene and he would do things that were against God's will. And they would lose territory and they would suffer defeat and they would be lost and they would, they would be killed in battle. They, they, would, they would suffer greatly. Because though they were God's children, they were not operating in God's favor and God's blessing. Church, we cannot, we cannot go through our journey treating our relationship with Jesus halfway. He has, he has to have everything. He has to have it all. 
every part. You say, well, pastor, that's, that's crazy, pastor. It's, it, it's too much, pastor. I don't know what to do. Listen, it starts by seeking him. Seek him first. Seeking him looks can be done in all sorts of different ways. We seek him in the word. We seek him through worship. We seek him through obedience. We talked about that last week. That sometimes the reason why we can't find God is because God asked us to do something and he's still waiting on us to do it. He's still waiting. He didn't leave you or forsake you. Sometimes when I look at my children and I ask them to do something, I just sit and I wait. And I wait, and I wait, and I wait. And they'll come up to me and say, Daddy, can we do this? Daddy, can we do that? No, we can't do that. No, son. No, daughter, we can't do that. No, baby. We can't do that because I asked you to do this over here and you've still not done it yet. And they weep and cry and gnash their teeth and moan and groan and what a horrible dad. Dad's withholding things from me. Dad's so mean. And I look at him and I say, I'm not withholding from you. You're withholding from yourself. When we give God less than everything in our life, the only person that we hurt is ourself. When we give God less than everything, We cut ourselves off from his favor and from his blessings. And it's not that he doesn't love us. It's that he loves us too much to let us continue going the way that we're going. to us every day the world indoctrinates us every day you don't believe me turn the TV on they are preaching non-stop the values of the world Church, the Word of God says that in the last days there will be a great falling away at the same time that there is a great outpouring of God's Spirit. 
at the same time revival is going on, there are going to be countless millions who turn from Jesus and turn their back on God and His teachings. God didn't turn His back on them. Every one of those people who came to Jesus along the journey and said, hey, let me follow you, it wasn't Jesus who turned His back and left. It was them. It was them. This is why the scripture says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling before the Lord. Not because we're afraid of God, but because we're afraid that if we have anything less than God, we'll miss God. If God has anything less than every part of our life, that I may be led astray. And there is not a single person in this room who is immune to that. God is calling us to a deeper place of intimacy with Him in His kingdom. And if we want to walk in and receive from Him the blessings and the favor and the gifts that He has for us, then we have to do life God's way. Surrendering every part of ourself Every thought, every desire, laying ourselves down and saying, God, I have to have you, is then and only then that God can pour out his spirit upon us, upon our nation, upon our community. Because we are the ones who are charged. We are the ones who bear responsibility for God's favor on our community. That was the message of Second Chronicles chapter 7. That if my people who are called by my name, if they will humble themselves and if they will repent of their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. It doesn't say if the world does those things. It doesn't say if the judges and the politicians will get their act together. It doesn't say if the school systems will start teaching the right things. It says if God's people, if we who are called by His name, are you called by His name this morning? Right now, with every head bowed and every eye closed in this place, if you're here this morning and you'd say, Pastor, I've been going through life.